This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So there's a lot of people that we can owe money to. Um, One of the scarier uh, creditors, I think, is the government. Absolutely. Whether it's provincial or federal, um, it's... There's there's not a lot of wiggle room with those folks. Mm-hmm. No, owing the government, I would say it's the last on the list of people that you would want to owe money to um, because it's very scary. First yeah. off, you often feel as though there's a power imbalance, which there absolutely is. Absolutely. You know, all the resources of the government against you, the individual. Um, and then often there's an element, um, I don't want to use the word ignorance in a bad sense, but just of not knowing. If you feel like you don't know all the parameters and the other side knows everything. So people can really get stressed very quickly if they owe the government money. And sometimes the debts can come out of the blue because you just didn't know your obligations. And we deal with them or we pay uh, either provincial or federal monies all the time. If we're homeowners, if we're working, you know, anybody, you know, in a whole bunch of areas. So it's really important to pay attention. So Mm -hmm. what kind of debts do you see? Because you talk to a lot more people than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, What are the government debts that people are dealing with when they're coming to see you and, and needing some support? Yeah, so as I was preparing for the segment here today, as I started to set it out, it's like there's a lot of categories here. I've got upwards of six here, you know, and, and these are some broad categories. So, yes. you know, first off is personal income taxes. Sure. So very straightforward. Um, you know, if you worked a couple of jobs, didn't have enough taxes taken off, if you cashed in some RRSPs or, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why somebody might owe personal income taxes. But if you file your taxes and you owe the government money, payment is due by April 30th of the following year to avoid paying interest and penalties. It's a little bit more slack if you're self-employed employed, but we won't, we'll keep it simple. Yeah. So generally it's April 30th for an individual. And just because you don't file the tax return, that's not a strategy for the government <laughs> not to say that you owe money. No. Uh, they'll eventually figure it out. They'll still assess your interest and penalties going back to the day when the return should have been filed. So we say it often on this show, being a non-filer with CRA is way worse than having a debt owing to CRA. Get the return in even if you know you owe money. Yeah, so important. Mm-hmm. So important. What about uh, GST? Because we talked about, we've talked about that in segments that businesses have to pay it. Yeah, so second GST debt from your business. So if you're over $30,000 of gross revenue, CRA generally in almost all industries requires you to charge, collect, and remit GST to them. Um, Even if you've started the business, you didn't know about GST, you didn't charge your customers anything, you're still going to be on the hook for that. Um, Whether it's an incorporated business, a proprietorship, or anything else, that's a debt that the person who runs the business, the director or the proprietor, would have to pay personally or would be assessed personally. Now, if you've got your own business again and you're, uh, you know, paying people to work for you, Mm -hmm. whether it be a landscaping business, something small or or something large, you can't mess around with that. That's right. So the third big category is payroll source deductions. So this is things like CPP, EI premiums, the employer and the employee portion. 
um, income taxes, all this stuff that as an employee gets deducted from your paycheck. As an employer, you have to make those deductions and pay the money to CRA. And the second half is the the important part, just because you deduct the money, if that doesn't get remitted to CRA and gets used in the business operations, um, that's generally the worst debt you can owe to CRA because it's viewed as you using their trust money to fund your operations. So not something that you want to do. You're collecting the money for them. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. really important. Now, student loans, and it's kind of, student loans are kind of uh, an enigma enigma for me because there's so many moving parts, but what's sort of the essential piece of it? Yeah, the essential piece is that a student loan debt, now not for a private bank, bank line of credit, that's not the same, but a government student loan or provincial student loan, um, that's got the power of CRA behind it. So it's treated the same as an income tax debt. Um, You know, they can seize things from you. They can take the same collection activities we're going to talk about. A student loan debt is basically the same as owing the government for taxes. And it doesn't matter if you've you've spent tens of thousands of dollars and you don't have a job at the end of this. It doesn't matter. You still owe the money. Still yeah, owe there's the money. various programs, and they're always getting better and better with you know interest relief or repayment assistance or things like that. But I have people in my offices every week with a lot of student loan debt, and they're really struggling. Okay, so uh, what's the next one? Yeah, so last couple ones here. So EI overpayments and penalties. So uh, if you were on EI and you got employed and you didn't necessarily let EI know right away and you got an extra payment or two, um, that's another debt to the government that they will come back and try to collect from you. Yes. Uh, and then the last one here of the six we chatted about is MSP premiums. So these are going to be eliminated next year, yay to the government for simplifying things for consumers and making employers pay. Um, but it doesn't deal with the past debt. So if you filed your taxes, sometimes if your income is low, there'd be some premium assistance. But otherwise, if your MSP premiums have been unpaid, the government's going to require you to pay those or try uh, to collect from you. Okay, even though the, the rules are, are changing for 2020. Yeah, they're changing going forward. But you know, this year, they're going to want their half payment and for years previous it's the full payment. Yep. Okay, so we talk about how scary the government if if you owe the government a lot of money and they know you owe the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the res, uh, recourses that they have to collect on those debts? Yeah, so kind of from the the you know least severe and going forward here, you know, first off they're just going to charge you some interest and penalties. So like any other lender, uh, if you're, you know, delinquent on a payment, they're going to hit you with some interest charges and they're occasionally going to put some penalties then as well, you know, a late filing penalty. Um, so CRA starts charging interest May 1st on any unpaid amounts owing for personal taxes. Um, And they'll start charging you interest on penalties after the filing due date as well. For 2018, their penalties were 5% of the balance owing plus 1% of the balance owing for each month the return is late. So it's kind of significant. You know, it's not the credit card interest rate, but um, 5% just as a lump sum for being late is a kind of significant penalty. Yep. Uh, And I just want to throw in personal experience. Even if you're uh, finishing off someone's estate Mm -hmm. and that estate didn't properly pay for a caregiver, let's say, or, or pay taxes connected to that... Um, they actually don't care that you're dealing with the death of someone. Yeah. Um, they still want their money. Yeah, you she might says laughingly. <laughs> black humor, right? You'll you'll find some reps that are very compassionate, and you'll find others that are ticking a box and going through a process. And it doesn't matter if someone very close to you that you're dealing with. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Don't always expect compassion when you phone the government. Well, they might give you some compassion, but the rule is the rule, yeah. and this is the date, and you're late, and this is and this here's is the compounded interest as a result of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
what what was the last one about if you're habitually yeah. late filing? If you're a late filer, well, they, they make it worse. They say, oh. okay, if it's your first year, here's 5% penalty and 1% per month. Uh, if they charged you a late filing penalty from 2015 to 17, so anytime in the last three years, if you were late in 2018, the penalty is doubled. So it's 10% of the balance owing and 2% for each full month that it's late. So again, trying to make it more severe if you're a habitually late father. So the idea here is get the filing in, get it in on time, avoid the penalties. Even if you know you owe the you owe the money, you're going to be in a better state if you get the filing in on time. That's a really, I think that's an important point is, mm-hmm. is let them know that you know and, and talk, right. talk to them. So the interest and the penalties, that can be done by anybody, but there's a few things that only CRA can do. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those. Yeah, and these, as I said, we often say things come like a bolt out of the blue. Well, this <laughs> is the, the type of thing when CRA yeah. puts a collection action, they often don't give you much notice ahead of time. So uh, one that they do to really get your attention is to freeze your bank account. So what that means is there's no movements in, no movements out, whatever's in your account at the moment CRA contacts the bank is frozen. Um, and then sometimes they'll agree to release that account. You know, once you deal with them, you say, okay, I'll get the filing in next week. They'll allow you access to your bank account again. Um, other times they might seize all the funds that are in there. And that might be your your rent money, you know, uh, money to, to afford for the kids. So it can be very, very scary situation if suddenly your account is frozen. This is not the first thing they do. So most of the time when people say my account's been frozen as we dig into it, I'm like, okay, well, you're three years behind in your taxes. You owed the money then. So I can see why they're trying to get your attention because you're just not playing the game. You're not filing the returns. But once we speak to the rep, they say, yeah, once they file the returns, we'll start to work with them on it. But this is an attention getting type of thing. Wow. That's serious attention getting. Yeah. What about my stuff? Are they going to take my stuff that I've bought that I'm, or, or, you know, that I Mm -hmm. have to make up the amount that I owe? They could. Wow. Yeah, they often don't come for personal property, but one big thing, as we know in the, in the Lower Mainland here and on Vancouver Island, is real estate, and CRA can register a charge against any real estate owned in a person's name. Um, they can do it, again, without any notice, without a court hearing. They just register a charge, um, and that just guarantees that CRA will get their money over time. What it also does is it forces the person to deal with them because typically in Canada, we do our mortgages on about a five-year cycle. And if you're trying to renew a mortgage, if CRA has a charge on that title, usually your lender is not going to agree to renew the mortgage unless you've dealt with CRA and that charge has been removed. So it's kind of like a lien, right? That a company exactly would a put lien. on you? Yep. Yeah. Same type of thing. But you know, with a lien, if a company's putting it on you, there's a court proceeding, you can argue against it, you can get it removed. If it's a CRA lien, there's nothing like that. It just kind of happens. Okay. And if I'm selling my property mm-hmm. uh, and that charge is on there, yeah. then the prospective buyer would also eventually, you know, like it just wouldn't look good. It wouldn't look good. Now, it might not come to light until, you know, the funds are being dispersed. Sure. And at that point, the deal is done. But what it means to you is you might have thought you're coming out of the property with, you know, X dollars. Yeah. Well, before you see a dollar, CRA is going to take their money. Going to take that money. That's got to get paid out. Yeah. Okay. How about my wages? How are they impacted? Or are they impacted? Well, they very well can be. And again, this is another thing that sends people running through the doors of a licensed <laughs> insolvency trustee yes. is the idea of a wage garnishment. Uh, if you're an employee, uh, relatively straightforward. CRA can go straight to your employer, your HR department, and usually they take about 30% of your wages before it's payable to you. And that can be an incredible shock to the system. Most people are just struggling, you know, paycheck to paycheck, and then suddenly getting 70% of what they should be getting. Um, That's a big problem. Um, Now, even if you're self-employed, you might say, well, you know what, I I don't work for anybody. I just deal with my clients. Uh, It's actually even worse there because what CRA can do is what's called a requirement to pay. And that means CRA might say, okay, you 
work with five different clients. I've sent each of those five clients direction that the next dollar they're supposed to pay to you has to go directly to CRA. So it's a requirement to pay CRA instead of the person doing the work. And that essentially chokes off your revenue down to zero. And again, it's all the idea of CRA wants to get your attention, wants to make sure you're following the returns and get you to deal with the debt. Um, But I'm dealing with somebody right now who unfortunately didn't deal with CRA for a lot of years. They're taking 85%. Um, of her gross income on a monthly wow. basis. So she's literally wow. working for 15 cents on the dollar and she's been doing it for about a year now. Wow. So I'm thrilled we're going to be able to help her. As soon as a trustee is involved, I can put a stop to just about all of these things, which is what we're going to do. Um, but it requires the reaching out and seeking help. Got it. So besides that, reaching out and getting help, how else can you mitigate uh, these kinds of debts? Do they? Is there any solutions bef- bef- besides paying them off entirely and, and them coming after you? Well, generally, they're going to want all their money. And the person that you're dealing with at CRA, they're not going to be able to make a deal with you to compromise on the amount. You know, sometimes they can deal, you know, reducing interest and penalties. But if you can't pay the full amount of CRA debt, it's generally only a consumer proposal or a personal bank bankruptcy, they can help you renegotiate that debt. Now, that being said, that's your last resort. And that's if nothing else works. So the first thing you'd want to do is, you know, get all the returns filed up to date, open lines of communication with CRA, and, you know, see, can we work something out informally? Most of the time, CRA will give you about a six-month window to come to payment terms with them. But if it's an insurmountable debt, I think your plan one is still do all the returns up to date, get back in, you know, the compliance books. But to deal with the debt, you've really got to see a licensed insolvency trustee. And they'll help you figure that out at Mm-hmm. Sands and Associates. And listen, if you're still not convinced, go to the website sands-trustee.com or give them a call 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well as to find one of their 16 offices near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about the key differences between credit counseling programs and personal bankruptcy. It's super, it's going to be really interesting if you don't know the difference or if you don't know the different mm-hmm. pieces of each. At least I always found this, find this interesting topic. So both credit counseling programs and personal bankruptcy are dead options to consider, but there's some big, big differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's start with credit counseling program um, and who provides... Who provides each of them? Yeah, let's start at the what. What are we talking about, right? So credit counseling programs, it's a means of consolidating your debt into a settlement program. And the credit counselor is someone that facilitates that process. So in simple terms, when you go in and see a credit counselor, they'll help you sit down and look at your entire situation and say, okay, here's all the people that you owe money to. Um, Let's see, can we consolidate all those payments together? Maybe save you a little bit of money on the interest, but let's help you pay the debt back in full. Sounds great. Exactly. And while we do that, let's also give you some good budgetary support. Let's try to help you avoid getting in the situation again, identify the root causes and so on and so forth. Um, So I tend to say, you know, if situation is relatively non-severe, if it's not a huge amount of debt, you know you're going to be able to pay it back, but you might just need a break on the interest. That's when a credit counselor can make good sense. Okay. 
personal bankruptcy, on, on the other hand, yeah. uh, personal bankruptcy, it's a legislative proceeding. So what you do with a credit counselor, it's informal, it's negotiations between um, you know you and your creditors, and the creditors often pay some money back to the credit counselor as a, basically a fee for service because they appreciate the credit counselor helps them get paid back. When you file a personal bankruptcy, you're essentially using the law. You're sitting down with a trustee. The trustee is invoking a federal um, statute that's going to give you protection from all of your creditors. So you generally don't do a bankruptcy if you're intending to pay all of the debt back. You do a bankruptcy when the debt has reached a level that you know you're not going to be able to repay it. You need some protection from your creditors and the law again operates to give you that protection, the breathing room to restructure with the idea that you'll file for bankruptcy, be in bankruptcy for a period of time, do some some work to restructure, and then you exit bankruptcy and the debt gets left behind. You owe nobody anything. That's the whole idea. A licensed insolvency trustee, are you the only one who can negotiate a bankruptcy for me? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So if you hear, you know, bankruptcy attorneys, that's a U.S. thing. Um, you know, bankruptcy lawyers in Canada, they might help you with some advice before or after you filed, but the only person that can help you with filing a bankruptcy is a licensed insolvency trustee. You can't access the proceeding any other way. Okay. So what kind of law governs credit counseling programs? How about nothing? How about nothing? <laughs> How about nothing? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, and, and that's a bit of the void here um, because for me to be a trustee, it's a federal offense for me to call myself a trustee if I'm not or to purport that I can provide these services if I can't. There's no law that says what's a credit counselor, what's an accreditation. Um, there's n- really no rules that are out there essentially governing credit counselors. There's various provincial legislation that, you know, in the province of BC, um, a credit counselor can be considered a debt pooler, which essentially means, you know, they help you consolidate your debt. In the province of Ontario, the same behavior, a credit counselor is called a collection agent. So there really hasn't been good regulation of the industry, which again, for simple situations, there's not too much that's going to be going on there. You might be fine, but for anything complicated, definitely recommend that you sit down with a trustee uh, to figure out the options beyond a credit counseling option. Okay, so the debts under credit counseling and the debts under personal bankruptcy, are they different? Like who can handle what? I mean, we talked yeah. about the parameters, but... You know what I mean? Yeah, they're quite different, and it comes okay. down to the whole, you know, informal versus formal. So a credit counselor can handle debts if the creditor says that they want the credit counselor to handle the debts. So typically, this is debts that you know that you would owe to the banks. All the big banks tend to work with credit counselors. Uh, if you got a payday loan, payday loan companies won't work with credit counselors. Okay. Because by a creditor agreeing to work with a credit counselor, they've got to agree to an interest freeze. And payday loans, the way they get repaid and make their money is on, you know, the 50, 60% of annual interest. Yeah. Um, so typically, a payday loan can't be dealt with in a credit counseling plan. What's even more important is anything to do with government debt. Government will never work with a credit counselor. They'll only work with someone that's using the law. So things like credit, sorry, not credit card, uh, student loans, um, income taxes, GST, different things like that. Only a licensed insolvency trustee can help with those debt. A credit counselor can't help at all with those types of things. Okay, so that's really two really big differences. Yeah, you know, even ICBC debt in the province of BC, we can help with that as a trustee. Credit counselor could not help you if there was an ICBC debt. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned that both options consolidate or combine your debts. How much of their debt would uh, a personal gen- uh, would a person generally have to pay back? Yeah, and this is really straightforward because, because there's no legislation governing a credit counselor, they're not able to reduce your debt a penny. 
So if you sit down with a credit counselor, you come in there, you owe $8,000, what you're going to be repaying is at least $8,000 because probably you'll pay a little bit more on fees. But the benefit, the value there is what you're not paying, which is the interest. If that's a debt to all the big banks, the big banks typically will agree to an interest freeze with a credit counselor. Again, they'll pay the credit counselor some money in exchange for that. But from a consumer point of view, you're probably better off if you're going to see a credit counselor and you're able to pay back 100 cents of the debt, but at least you're not paying the interest. That's the benefit there. Okay. Now, that compares to a bankruptcy where there's no set repayment on debt. And the idea of a bankruptcy recovering 100% of the debt, that's the anomaly, the unicorn that almost never happens. That's someone filed for bankruptcy and then won the lottery. Okay. We've had that happen once in 30 years. Doesn't Is that happen. right? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. A little aside, they filed, filed in the morning, one in the afternoon. Very, Are you, you know, kidding? still folklore around our office, obviously. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. And what happens there, just for the listeners, is we go to court, we annul the bankruptcy, everyone gets paid out, and everyone's happy there. Sure. But yeah, typically it doesn't happen. So if you file for bankruptcy- <laughs> Don't wish on that. Don't we, expect that to happen. That's right. We know you're not repaying 100% of the debt. Right. What you have to repay is driven 100% by your income. So the government determines if you're considered a low-income person, bankruptcy runs for nine months, and you pay $200 a month for nine months for $1,800. That could be to clear millions of dollars of debt. It could be to clear ten thousand dollars of debt you pay based on your income not based on the amount of the debt and when you finish the bankruptcy you exit knowing nobody anything so you might be doing a credit counseling plan where you're paying off all the you know the credit card debt and all that but you've still got a student loan you've still got income tax debt you've still got these payday loans you can come out to that out of that credit counseling plan still owing money right. when you finish a bankruptcy with very very few exceptions you know maybe spousal support you owe nobody anything when you finish that bankruptcy and you said too that it can take up to a maximum of five years to complete the credit counseling exactly program. yeah and you still haven't paid off everything right so if, if you do a credit counseling plan whatever debts they're able to include the maximum term is up to five years and again you can imagine whatever that number is that you owe if it's ten thousand dollars or something like that you know dividing that over 60 payments that still might be a payment that you can't afford and you're going to be doing that for the next five years. Now, in the last sort of minute and a half, what kind of impact to to a person's credit history does each process? Mm-hmm. Well, a credit, a credit counseling plan is less severe because it's not a bankruptcy. Right. So, you know, similar to a consumer proposal, they actually reflect the same way. Uh, it's viewed as a negotiated payment arrangement on your debts. So if we were to line up all of a person's debts, everyone is going to report on an R scale. R1 is perfect credit. You never miss any payment to pay as agreed on time. R9 is you file for bankruptcy, you skip the country, something like that has happened. Consumer proposal and credit counseling are both R7. So they're not close to R1, they're not that far off from R9, but they're not quite R9. So if you do a credit counseling plan or even a consumer proposal, you can answer no to that question, have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Because you haven't, you've done something different. If you file a bankruptcy, you have to say yes that you've went into bankruptcy. How quickly they clear is a consumer proposal will clear two to three years after your last payment. So if it's five years of payments, plus two or three years, you're at seven to eight years of total impact. If you were to do a bankruptcy, most bankruptcies finish in nine months, and a bankruptcy clears six years after your discharge, so pretty close on seven years. Right. So Elaine, they're not that different. Yeah, they're not, are they? Don't make the decision solely based on the credit rating. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So here's a question. 
Where can you find out more information about the options and get them explained properly? That's a really important piece. Yeah, there's only one individual in the whole system that's independent, unbiased officer of the court, which is a licensed insolvency trustee. So I'm bound by my code of ethics that if credit counseling is the right answer for you, I'll make you aware of that. If a proposal or a bankruptcy is a better option, we'll explore that as well. So sit down with an LIT for a free confidential consultation. Excellent. If you want to check out the Sands & Associates website, do. It's a great one. It's sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 and find that one of 16 offices near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about on this show a lot, either specifically about or using it as an example of something that you can do uh, when you go and see Blair uh, at Sands & Associates, and that's the consumer proposal. Mm -hmm. Let's break it down, sort of deconstruct it so people know exactly what it is. If you're kind of going, what's a consumer proposal? Because it feels like it's a new word, but it's been around for a while. It's yeah. just not necessarily been called this. Is that right? Yeah, no, that, that's that's fair, Elaine. And I often joke, you know, my life's work is to let people know about this option because I had no idea a consumer proposal even existed. I graduated from business school, worked in a professional services firm for a lot of years. It was only when a family member had debt trouble that I actually learned about this as a consumer proposal. And I find people day to day in my office, they still don't know this is an option. So I'm excited today to really get into the nitty gritty, talk about what a proposal is, give you some examples to start, what what can it do? And then what are the actual steps? We're going into some good detail. So this idea of a proposal that we toss around, here's the actual nitty gritty detail on it. Okay. So what is it? What is a consumer proposal? Right. So a consumer proposal, it's a legal debt consolidation. So it's only available through a licensed insolvency trustee. And what happens is you sit down with a trustee, you review your whole situation, and then we figure out what can you really afford to pay back on your debts. In very few cases, is it 100% of the debt or you probably wouldn't be in my office? Most of the times, it's we look at a situation and we say, you know what, if this person were to file for bankruptcy, it's likely they would have to pay back very little to nothing on their debts and nothing would be recovered. We say they can't afford to pay all their debts back in full, so we put together a proposal which is meant to be a win-win. The win to the person is they don't file for bankruptcy. The win to the people that they owe money to is the person's going to offer them back more money than they would have received if that person had filed for bankruptcy. So in many cases, you know, if someone owes... uh, a certain amount of debt, we offer a proposal for about a third of the debt, maybe half of the debt, something like that, and it's payable in monthly payments over a period of time. So often the creditor then is going to be a little more uh, uh, favorable of this as a solution than mm-hmm. if somebody's going to de- declare bankruptcy. Yeah, this is really the creditor's option because um, if someone declares bankruptcy, it's their right. The creditor doesn't have to say yes or no, they can't reject it, they've just got to accept and deal that the person's used Canadian law to protect them. When the person makes a consumer proposal, the creditor gets the option. Would you agree, creditor, to reduce your debt um, and allow this person to pay off a reduced amount with no interest? By the way, if you say no to this, you're probably going to end up with nothing because they might file for bankruptcy. 95 to 99% of the, of the time, they vote to accept the consumer proposal. Sure, it makes sense. So a couple examples that might help our listeners here. Yeah. So uh, if there was someone that owed $20,000, and this is a number I see all the time, credit cards, student loans, payday loans, things like that, a typical offer in a consumer proposal might be 30% of the total debt repaid. So that $20,000, the minimum payments on that might be, you know, seven dollars $800 typically. If you were to do a consumer proposal, the payment would be $165 a month, 
uh, and it'd be done in 36 months, so just over three years. What you'd be paying back is 30 cents on the dollar. What would get written off is 70 cents on the dollar, and you would not have to do a bankruptcy filing all the costs would be included. You've essentially made a deal to compromise your debts. That's a consumer proposal. And if I'm listening to this and go, yeah, but I can't afford $165 a month, Mm -hmm. that's something that's also taken into consideration by you. Yeah, I'm not allowed to file a consumer proposal unless I sit down with somebody and we go through their budget and we establish that there is the ability to to make this reduced payment that's going to actually solve the problem. If it's the case, the person's relying on credit every month because they've got a $500 hole in their budget, I'm not helping them if suddenly I turn off the credit tap and say, hey, you got to pay me $165 to solve the problem. They've got to do a bunch of work first to figure out how are they going to live with no access to credit because you've got to be able to be self-sufficient. And then we can decide what we're going to do with, with the consumer proposal. And, you've, and you'll help them figure out the right balance or the right amount that they, they'll have to pay. Yeah. you know, Debts in a consumer proposal, the maximum is $250,000, which is huge, but I've definitely seen people up to close to that amount. And that's not including your, mo- your mortgage. So the mortgage is okay. separate. You'd continue to pay on a mortgage, a car loan. Um, but if you had consumer debts up to 250000 that's when a consumer proposal could apply. What's the minimum? Uh, there's no minimum. Okay. So I've seen people as low as four or $5,000, and okay. it's been payday loan debt. So they know it might be 4000 now, but with these interest charges, next year it could be eight, after that, 12. So they do a consumer proposal. And on a small amount of debt, you generally have to pay back probably about half or more than that. But still, you stop the interest, and you, you get yourself basically back on track to get out of debt as opposed to being in a cycle of debt. Okay, now there's a couple of more rules that you've got here. It can't, it does, does, how long does it go on for the consumer proposal? Yes, yeah, so the maximum term on a consumer proposal, and I like this, the maximum term is 60 months or five years. Okay. So we're not talking the never-never plan. We're not talking 10, 20 years of debt payments, which if you look at your minimum payments, that's usually the plan that you're on. Maximum term is five years for a proposal. And what I really like too is that's the absolute max because you can pay it off quicker. So if you do a proposal, let's say it's the 165 over 36 months, say things are going great and you decide you can double up on payments, you'll be finished that proposal in a year and a half. Okay. No interest, no additional charges anyway, but as soon as you pay off the reduced balance, you're finished a proposal and you get up to five years to do so. So it's a little more flexible. Yeah. Really flexible. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do I get started? So the way a consumer proposal works, so at Sands & Associates, we typically employ a three-meeting approach. And this is the same for a bankruptcy and a proposal because when someone walks in the door, we don't really know what we're, what we're facing, right? And that's the joy of my job is I'm going to meet with a bunch of really nice people every day who are going to tell me um, all their secrets so to speak, and we're going to come to a good answer. So sometimes the answer is a proposal. Sometimes the answer is a bankruptcy. Sometimes the answer is just some informal counseling, making them aware of different tools and resources that are available. But everything starts with a free confidential consultation. So we mention a lot on this show, you know, you call the 1-800 number, um, you'll meet with one of our representatives at one of our 16 offices, very qualified people. And we'll sit down by saying, you know, what, what brings you in today? You know, what, what's been going on? What's the situation? And usually it's, well, I've got a ton of debt and the phone's ringing off the hook and I'm worried about all these things happening and we'll just start a very gentle um, compassionate dialogue about well here's the options here's what you're facing and then we'll we'll start a plan from there and it's got to be different for every person that comes in your door right Mm -hmm. I mean some of the things will be similar but for the moment like my situation could be completely different than the other but even the amount is the same yeah yeah the the numbers change marginally but the people situations change completely from person to person you know um, anywhere from you know long-term medical issues 
Cruise, for example, to someone who a year ago was on the top of the world, had a very successful business, and now suddenly things have changed, the coins flipped, and they've got some big issues. So, um, you know, I see folks of all walks of life and various different scenarios, um, but almost always, um, to a fault, people learn things when they come in for that first initial consultation, no matter how financially sophisticated they are, most people have no idea about insolvency, about the options that are available to them. So the first meeting, we book it for an hour. It's typically about, you know, 40 minutes to to an hour in length. Answer all the questions. And then if you sit down with anyone at my offices, you'll leave knowing exactly what your options are. If you chose to file a bankruptcy, here's what that's going to look like. If you choose to do a consumer proposal, um, here's how we think that structure is going to unfold. So the first meeting is huge. And I never have someone say they regret coming to that meeting. I have people say they regret waiting so long. People really, um, you know, they sit on the fence. They're worried about being judged. They're worried they can fix the situation themselves. And even if you can fix it yourself, you're still going to be armed with better knowledge by coming in for that first meeting. Fair enough. So what happens in the second meeting with you? Let's say I've decided to go ahead with a Mm -hmm. consumer proposal. What happens then? Yeah. So at the first meeting, typically at the end of it, I pass over an application form, my business card, all the basically numbers that we've written up. And I say, okay, backbone of our second meeting is that you bring back an application form and you just give me some proof of what you've told me today. So we talked about all the debts that you've had. Okay, bring me in the most recent uh, statements for those. We talked that you've got a car and there's a loan against it. Okay, bring me the vehicle registration and the loan statement. We talked that you work this job, bring me in the pay stub and your taxes for the last year. So it's all pretty basic stuff. You know, I need to know your debts. I need to know your assets and your monthly income. So you bring me in some documentation to support all of that. And then during the rest of the second meeting, we just answer your questions. So if it's a consumer proposal, we talk about, well, part of the proposal is going to be the creditor acceptance period. So people are going to have to vote to accept and we go through that. And then we also talk about counseling because a really important part of both bankruptcies and consumer proposals is that you come for two financial counseling sessions. So the second meeting, again, we book about an hour, go through all of the information. Um, and by the way, and you haven't asked this, but no one's paid anything at this point. So the initial consultation is always free. All the subsequent meetings are free. The only time someone pays a fee is when we actually start to move forward and solve the problem. And you figured out what the monthly payment's exactly. going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the third meeting is... The happy signing meeting. So that's the meeting when I find people walk out and I've had it many, many times. People say, you know what? I feel just so much lighter. I feel like I'm walking on air because what they've done during the third meeting is we sit down, we go through all the legal documents. We review everything in detail. You swear some oaths. This is an accurate and true representation of everything. Um, And then you walk out of the office knowing that you're fully protected. Your creditors can't do anything to you. Knowing that your proposal has just been filed and now for the next 45 days, all your creditors can do is decide, do they want to accept a proposal that's going to give them a good repayment or do they want to reject that and then you would have an option of either filing a bankruptcy or going back to where you were before. 95% of the time they accept the proposal. 99% of the time if we negotiate we reach a deal. So not quite 100% but very, very close. But you're looking after all that stuff at that point, All that's behind the scenes, yep. So when that person walks out of the office after the third meeting, uh, we kind of jokingly say, but no news is good news. So we'll only call you if there's a negative vote, if there's a counter offer, anything like that. Otherwise, we're just waiting for 45 days to be over, and that's when the proposal is approved. Excellent. So what happens after they've let's go ahead, ferry, uh, you know, that they've gone ahead and approved it? Mm-hmm. What the creditors have accepted the proposal? Then what? Well, then life becomes pretty simple mm-hmm. because when you came in to see us, probably you were doling out, you know, payments, you know, and a small proposal, you know, maybe three creditors and other larger proposals, maybe 15, 20 different people you're trying to keep happy 
fee every month. In the proposal, you make a single payment. You make it to the trustee each month. We do auto withdrawal from bank accounts, so it's just seamless. We try to synchronize with your pay dates. So one payment per month comes out, and generally it's a payment that's way less than what you were paying before. Um, other than that, you come for the two financial counseling sessions that we talked about. You sit down with us. We talk about credit rebuilding, household budgeting, life after the proposal is complete. Um, and then you just continue on making the payments. So usually as part of terms of the proposal, you got to keep up to date in your tax filings. Uh, but that's about it. There's very little compliance otherwise. It's just make the payments, come for the counseling, and then we deal with all the rest. Are there any debts that can't be included in that consumer proposal? That's a good question, Elaine. There are a few. There's a, a lot of small debts. And, you know, they're typically the ones that you might think are, you know, maybe shouldn't be included in a proposal. So things like court-imposed fines. So if you go to court and the judge says, you know what, you must pay this fine, um, you can't suddenly do a proposal and say, hey, how about 20 cents on the dollar back? <laughs> no, the court's no. made that order. So um, unfortunately, it's got to be dealt with. Okay. Um, things that, you know, just logically you shouldn't be able to walk away from, things like money owing for things stolen or property obtained through false pretenses oh, sure. or fraudulent misrepresentation. All that stuff. So I think people sometimes have an idea that, you know, it's the scofflaws that, you know, um, try to renegotiate their debt. Well, the scofflaws run away from their debt. The people that do consumer proposals, um, typically they're dealing with debt that's honestly incurred and they, fa- they face it head on. Fair enough. Uh, child and spousal support payments. So if you've got an obligation for maintenance to your family, you'd never want to compromise that anyway. And in a proposal, you can't compromise it. So if there's an FMEP award, that's got to get paid. But you You'll work with me if, mm-hmm. if that's the case. If oh, I've got course. to pay that amount of money, yeah. you're gonna that's gonna be part of the discussion about what I can afford to pay each month. Oh, of course. If any of this sounds like you that 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 fits you or someone you know, go see Blair and his staff, Sands and Associates. They've got 16 offices in British Columbia. Uh, go to their website, check it out. It's terrific, and give them a call one 3030 for that consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Statute of limitations on my debt. And it's a it's p- something that people want to know about. That's what so that interesting. Mean, right? Yeah, what does it mean to the person who doesn't know? And the fact that people want to know the the limitations on these things. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so let's talk. So the, it's a provincial statute on limitation uh, on the limitations of debt. Yeah, let's kind of st- step back a second. So I was mentioning yeah. to you, Elaine. You know, we did a blog post on this a couple of years ago, and it's been our most popular blog post ever in the history of our site. So people still search it all the time. I look at you know the traffic reports. A lot sure. of people are still reading this article, so I got to think it's something of, re- of relevance to the listeners as well. Any suggestion or thought about why it is? Well, I think it's just people have no idea there is a statute of limitations on debt. So, you know, just starting off at the basics, what is a statute of limitations? I think most people generally understand, but just, you know, putting it out there, this means that if something happens, there's a certain period of time where you've got to take action to hold somebody accountable or you lose the right to ever do so. Correct. Um, so we're not going to talk too much, you know, personal injury or different things like that. I'm just talking no. about debt. Um, but let's say, you know, if you were to borrow money from me, um, if you didn't pay me back and we had a certain term that you were supposed to agree to, I can't hold this over your head for the rest of your life. Right. There is a statute of limitations that operate that basically give people some certainty that if they got an obligation, they haven't paid it, there's a certain period of time after which 
they lose the ability to ever be held accountable for that obligation. And so I want, sorry. Oh, so we're going to talk about that, how that operates today in respect to debts. And just thinking about them being the most popular, uh, uh, one of the most popular blogs on your site, I wonder if it's maybe the first step that people are taking to figure out if they're in trouble or not. I think that could be the case, yeah, especially if someone's got some debt. Oh my God, I didn't know I owed this. This is five years old. Hey, isn't there some protection for me, some statute right. on that? That could be a piece of it. Yeah. I can't believe they're still after me. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So let's talk about that. So the background on what the statue is about. So you've talked about it, that it's, um, well, you mentioned the other piece of that, that where can also come into play is liabilities due to injury and damages. Mm-hmm. Um, and your best advice for that is? Go talk to a lawyer. Yeah, there's a whole industry, obviously, of personal injury lawyers in BC. They do a great job. They're very well-versed in all of this. So, you know, if you've got, you know, physical loss, physical, um, um, you know, detriment, something happened to you, this is not the segment for you. If you owe money and you're concerned about it, this is the segment where we're going to talk about that. And it's interesting that you also mentioned that it's only two years. Yeah. It doesn't seem that that's long enough. It's really not very long. So it, what it is, it's governed under the Limitation Act of BC, and it's a two-year basic period, which it used to be six years. Okay, oh. and six years, it's still that way in a bunch of provinces. And I remember Ontario went to two years before BC did, and I thought, well, this does this mean in Ontario people are just going to stop paying their debts so they'll wait them out for two years? That's not what happened. Again, generally people are very honest. They don't just go and suddenly say, I'm not going to pay you because I know there's a statute of limitations here. Uh, but BC followed the same trend as Ontario and they reduced the period down to two years. So what this means is there's a limitation period of two years from the date the debt was incurred or the date the last payment was made against it or the date of the last time you gave a written acknowledgement that you owed this money. So what it means on a you know nuts and bolts basis sure. is if you've got say a credit card that you haven't been able to pay, you know sometimes you're better off not making the five or ten dollar payment that you might think the creditor is doing a favor for you, saying hey you haven't paid us in about eight months, why don't you make just a ten dollar good faith payment? I want to work with you. I know you're a good person. I'm a good person. What you're doing there is resetting the statute of limitations. So I see clients come in to see me, and sometimes it's been literally 22 months since they've heard from a creditor and say, oh my God, I'm getting all these collection calls now, but they're actually nice. They're friendly calls. They just want me to make a partial payment, and then they say, oh, they'll work with me again. And I say, well, that's great, and maybe there is an element of altruism in that, but what they're also doing is getting you to reset that statute of limitations back to the, the date of your last payment. So if you were at, you know, 22 months, if you hadn't made any payments on the debt, you were about to be protected by a statute of limitations after 24 months. If you made a payment in month 23, suddenly you're back to no protection from a limitations point of view. That clock starts ticking again. Okay. Now there are some exceptions to that two-year uh, limited, limited time, right? Mm-hmm. And what are they? Yeah, they're pretty similar to the types of, of exceptions, um, you know, that, that generally apply in, in a bankruptcy. Sure. Now, first off, the two years is only in BC. Different provinces are still up to six years in different places. Um, but things like if there was a civil claim that enforced a monetary judgment. So if someone sues you, take you to court and gets damages awarded against you, there is not a two-year limitation period for that type of a debt. Fair enough. Uh, debts owing to government bodies like CRA, student loans, income taxes, GST, that has no statute of limitations. So again, two years with the government, they're not going to know what you're talking about. It's not going to give you any type of protection. Uh, If there's arrears of child or spousal support, as we always say 
on this show here, that's not a debt you'd ever want to compromise anyway, and the government doesn't let you do that. Right. Um, so the Limitations Act doesn't apply to any support or maintenance obligations, um, but it does apply to things you know like credit cards, payday loans, basically every other type of consumer debt. Um, it's the case that if you're not able to pay the debt, if two years goes by from your last payment, written acknowledgement, um, or the date you incurred the debt, the creditor can never force you to pay that debt. So that could also include um, like a like furniture stores who mm-hmm. are giving you a, a product and you've decided that you're going to pay them back over a period of time, all of those kinds of sort of like yep. smaller, uh, not retailers, but smaller um, uh, credit. Credit. It, it could, yeah. There's, there's yeah. not, you know, a size test on it, so it could be a very big debt. But I've also got to think of it. You know, it's a, if it's a very large debt, they're probably not going to let 24 months go by before they actually bring a court action for payment. Fair enough. Generally, on a smaller debt, you're right. So if you had financed something from from a retail store, and let's say they didn't take security on the assets, which they often don't, well, then it becomes a standard unsecured debt, like a credit card or anything else. If you're unable to pay on that debt, um, you know, for the two years, they can threaten you that they're going to, you know, take you to court, come and seize assets and things like that. But as soon as it's more than two years from a last payment, they cannot bring a court action. If they did, they would lose in about 30 seconds of you showing up and saying the Limitation Act has passed, 24 months has elapsed since my last payment, you know, this should be thrown out and it would be. Okay. And uh, this is a bit of a repeat of what you've already said, but the two types of acknowledgements uh, that you don't want to make. So even if you've just like paid a dollar on mm-hmm. that debt. Yeah. That still then re- that resets the clock. Yeah, any partial payment. So again, be careful of that because that's definitely a strategy I've seen collectors employ. Um, and you know, the other is a written confirmation. So even if it's over email, it's you saying, yeah, I agree that I owe this money. I'm aware of the liability. I agree that I owe this money. That resets the clock back again and the two-year limitation period starts anew. Okay, so let's talk. Can, there's an example here that you've given us to talk about. Let's let's use that one. So that's when waiting until the debts are statute barred, mm-hmm. solving a person's financial problems. Yeah. So the type of person this would apply to is not somebody that's you know in the prime of their their career. You know, earning income needs to be very concerned about. You know, perhaps credit or different things like that. Yeah. This applies to somebody who's meets the the definition of the term judgment proof. And what that means is essentially it's someone with nothing left to lose. To to put kind of fine point on it, it means that even if they were taken to court, they don't have any assets, there's no real estate, there's no car, there's no savings, um, you know, it's, it's someone, they might have some furniture, some clothing, and that's about it. Um, and they've got no income that's easily seizable. If someone's, you know, working a good T4 job, they could have their wages taken. If someone is, you know, 70, 75 years old, is getting CPP, OAS, and that's about it, there's no court in this law that I'm aware of that's going to agree that a creditor can take, you know, 30 to 50% of that um, and leave the person destitute. So in many cases, if somebody is judgment proof, for example, they may they may want to file a bankruptcy just to make sure that it's dealt with it, but we'd often counsel them to say, you know what, if you were to send them a letter saying you don't consent to phone calls to stop the harassment and then just wait, wait the two years out, um, these debts will eventually become unenforceable against you. So it's not a comfortable way to go because you know there's people that are going to be contacting you saying, hey, you're not paying us and you should be. But after the period of two years goes by, that person would not have to look over their shoulder. They could not be collected from again. See, and that just means to me, that just says to me that that's, that's the time to go and see you and say, yeah. okay, now what do I do? Exactly. What do I right? do? 
And I'm if, in this situation. And if someone sits down with me, and sometimes it's friends and family members that bring in, you know, sometimes aged relatives, and we sit down, I give them a copy. Here's the letter you can send to your creditors that says you don't consent to phone calls. Here's how we expect this to go. Oftentimes, they still end up wanting some formal assistance because there is the certainty of going through a proceeding, knowing a trustee is on your side, going to help you get through it. Um, but being aware of the statute of limitations, sometimes people say, well, that's all I needed to know. As long as I know I'm protected, I'm not going to make a formal filing. I'm just going to wait for the two years to elapse. Right. But the best, the, the the key is here, folks, is to sit down and talk to somebody who knows, like like a licensed insolvency trustee, and figure out the best course of action to take or, or not to take, yeah. uh, and just sit tight. Yeah, it's just one other option for folks to consider. Go check out the website. It's terrific, sans-trustee.com. If you've got more questions in your mind, or better yet, just give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. They've got 16 office and, offices in British Columbia. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.